0: And good evening everyone, I'm Rick Edlund, Communications Consultant for the Show Me Institute. Thank you for joining us for our first ever Telephone Town Hall. Tonight we wanna talk about policy reforms that can help get Missouri back on track. During this evening's meeting, we will be hearing from guest speakers and we wanna hear from you. You will have the chance to participate by asking questions and answering survey questions. We're also gonna have a group of policy researchers who will participate in our Q&A. This is an interactive call. Feel free to press star at any time during this call to get in the queue to ask a question. And as we begin, I would like to introduce our guest speakers and panelists. Our guest speakers are Brenda Talent, our CEO, Patrick Ishmael, the Director of Government Accountability, Michael McShane, Director of Education Policy, and Patrick Tui, our Western Missouri Field Manager. Our panelists for our question and answer session, Michael Austin, is a policy analyst with the Show Me Institute. And two policy researchers are with us tonight, Michael Highsmith and Graham Renz. This evening, our discussion is going to be focused on our most recent publication, the 2017 blueprint, Moving Missouri Forward. It covers many, many issues. And to start off our conversation tonight, I would like to hand it over to Brenda Talon. Brenda, tell our audience a little bit about our Missouri blueprint.
1: Thank you, Rick. Now, scholars at the Institute have been working for many years researching and talking about the economic benefits of most of the policies reflected in the blueprint. We issued 20 for 2020 last January, those were 20 policies we were recommending back then, but after the November elections, it became clear that 2017 would present a unique opportunity to change the terms of debate in Missouri. The Missouri blueprint highlights 15 policies that we think, if enacted this year, would have the greatest positive impact on the growth and prosperity of our state. You know, as a state, we need to eliminate barriers to competitiveness with other states, reforms like right to work, reforms that reduce or eliminate job-destroying taxes and remove unnecessary regulatory burdens. We need to ensure that we have an educated workforce. So you're going to find several education reforms are identified in the blueprint, from expanding charter schools and course access to higher education reforms. And we need to make sure our government's accountable to taxpayers for the use of their money. If you haven't already, I hope those of you in our audience will join, visit our website and download the blueprint for your own review. It is available on that website.
0: All right, Brenda, thank you very much. Our first topic tonight is going to be health care in Missouri. Patrick Ishmael is our Director of Government Accountability. As I mentioned, he's written and spoken extensively about health care. Patrick, we're hearing a great deal, of course, these days about the Affordable Care Act, and there's a lot going on at the federal level. But isn't it true there are opportunities for states to make reforms as well? What can we expect in the months ahead?
2: Oh, absolutely,
3: and thanks, Rick, for asking that. You know, when we think about health care policy in this country, a lot of times we kind of look to the, the federal government because a lot of action has obviously been happening there over the last few years. The Affordable Care Act was passed, Obamacare back in 2010. And since then, it really hasn't been as affordable as we would have hoped. And, and like Brenda was saying, uh, in the last few months, it's become pretty clear that there are going to be some big changes ahead. Now, as far as the state is concerned, some of that is going to be impacted by federal policy, and, and it's not clear quite yet uh, at what rate the law is going to be repealed and precisely the terms upon which that replacement is going to be implemented, or how exactly it's going to be implemented. Two major factors that are going to be uh, pretty prominent here is the question of the mandate and the uh, Medicaid expansion, and that will also impact policy, which I'll talk about in just a second, at the state level. Uh, The mandate has got to go. Uh, I think as part of any repeal plan, it's pretty clear that that can't be a part of it because, uh, as we've seen, the mandate has actually driven up the cost of insurance for millions of Missourians, and it it is not a sustainable way of delivering health care coverage in health care to Missourians. So at the federal level, I would expect that to go, as well as the Medicaid expansion. Now, the state of Missouri didn't expand Medicaid, and that's to its credit. And the reason is twofold. The first is because Medicaid is a broken program, particularly for those who are supposed to be benefiting from it. The most vulnerable among us deserve to have a care that they can access, and unfortunately, Medicaid doesn't deliver it. But the second part of that is that the cost of Medicaid is also pretty extraordinary. By 2025, if we do not reform the Medicaid program, we're going to be paying between the state and the federal government about a trillion dollars a year on the program. Just in the state of Missouri, about a third of our budget today goes toward paying for Medicaid uh, services or or what we hope are services, but don't don't always turn out that way. Uh, That puts pressure on other budget items, including education, which, uh, Mike McShane is going to talk about it in just a second. That's why the, the federal component is very important. But at the same time, it isn't the only component. I hope certainly that we'll get Medicaid block grants, but there are things that the state can do today uh, that uh, can make health care in this state much better. And it focuses on supply. You know, when you talk about prices, uh, bending the cost curve down for health care, a lot of the focus has been on demand, on trying to get, you know, more people getting insurance, not necessarily care. We really do have to start looking at supply though. And and in the blueprint we talk about a very important component of that and that is getting rid of our antiquated certificate of need system. And for those of you who, who might be unfamiliar with certificate of need, certificate of need has been around across the country since about the 1960s and the idea was if you guarantee kind of a, a monopoly or an oligopoly for some healthcare providers, you may be able to guarantee access Uh, at at a a reasonable price for folks who live in a particular region. That never really panned out, unfortunately. In fact, in a lot of places where you saw certificate of need, the cost of care actually went up, and access to important services like MRIs actually went down. And so when we look at opportunities that the state of Missouri can pursue right now, uh, getting rid of our antiquated certificate of need program uh, and making sure that folks can access uh, care more easily by allowing for hospitals to open up more easily is, is, is central to that, to that objective. If you look in the Kansas City area in particular, Kansas is a, does not have a certificate of need law. And a, a couple of weeks ago, the Kansas City Star actually talked about this, That you saw a lot of innovative hospitals opening up on the, Kansas, on the Kansas side of Kansas City, but not in Missouri. And the reason is because of the legal structure that Kansas has set up, that Missouri has not. Uh, Missouri would benefit by getting rid of this uh, certificate of need law, and there are other things that the state can pursue as well as uh, a reciprocity of physician's licensure, uh, scope of practice reforms, which we talk about, and you can find on our website. But particularly for this year, I think the certificate of need provides a very low-hanging fruit that the state can pursue regardless of what happens at the federal level, uh, and it can do so in such a way that it actually improves the access to care and, and improves the quality of care, and I think will also improve the price of care over time.
0: Patrick, let me ask you a quick question. How far behind is Missouri in relation to other states in matters like this?
3: Uh, It's pretty far behind. You know, the the state of Missouri has made good progress in some areas when when you're talking about health care reforms like the Volunteer Health Services Act. The Volunteer Health Services Act allows for folks who are, for doctors who come to the state of Missouri and want to provide services for free to help people, allows them to not have to go through a new relicensing process. Uh, that issue came to our attention after the Joplin tornado when we, we started hearing reports about uh, doctors coming to the state and not being able to help residents because of our licensing laws. Uh, and so on, on that particular front, the state acted, uh, I think, two or three years ago uh, and fixed that problem in, in our in our laws. Uh, the state has also enacted direct primary care protections, and direct primary care is basically a subscription service that guarantees care to folks who join uh, doctor's practices that are DPC organizations. So that is progress as, as well. But unfortunately, you know, when you're talking about certificate of need, you know, there are uh, lots of states that have decided, you know what, this program doesn't work. And they've gone a different direction and said, you know what, if you want to open up a, a hospital in our state, we're not going to stop you. Uh, and and that's appropriate. We want to empower people to help one another. And, and, and when you say that you cannot... Uh, deliver a service to a place where you believe that there's a need for your service, I think that does a disservice not only to the hospital, but most importantly to the patients who could really benefit uh, from that added supply of health care, and that's really what the focus is.
0: All right, Patrick. Thank you very much for that. Stand by. We hope to get some questions to you in healthcare. care. This is an area, of course, and a bunch of issues you want to keep up with. You can follow Patrick's work on our website, showmeinstitute.org. And a reminder, if you'd like to ask Patrick or any of our other analysts a question, press star on your phone. Someone will be there to take your question. We'll try to get you an answer this evening. Uh, speaking of questions, we have a first survey question of the evening. It is this. Which of the following public policy areas would you like to learn more about and have us do more research on? Number one, health care. Number two, taxes. Number three, education. So press one, two, or three. The question again is, which of the following public policy areas would you like to learn more about or have us do more research on? Number one, health care. Number two, taxes. Number three, education. Well, how about that for a segue? Speaking of education, our education director, Mike McShane, is hard to miss these days. He's constantly appearing on radio stations around the state and most recently had op-eds in the Kansas City Star as well as the Columbia Tribune. Mike, welcome. I know there are several areas where we would like to see reform in education in Missouri, and why don't you give us an overview, please?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Rick. Um, You know, if you look at the blueprint that we have, 2017 blueprint that's available on our website, you will see that uh, with respect to K-12 education, we offer a kind of three-pronged approach where we look at the different groups of students around the state that have different needs. I think too often we sort of think of that all student needs or all communities are the same, but when we look at that at that real local level, and try and meet the needs of kids where they are, um, we have to have a kind of varied approach. So the three uh, sort of reform ideas that we are highlighting right now, if we start from sort of rural students and we will work our way into the cities, to start with our rural students are, is something called a course access program. And a course access program is, is actually pretty straightforward. What it does is it allows for some flexibility in the funding that is sent to students who attend traditional public schools. And it allows them to take a couple courses a day, depending on, as I think about, uh, 14 other states that have such programs that if you imagine your typical student, a high school student taking seven classes a day, you know, for two or three of those classes, the students would have flexibility to take those courses online, maybe go to the local community college, collaborate with another school district if it's not offered, because this is a real need in our rural communities. You know, we came out with a report last year that showed in hundreds of school districts across the state we didn't have any students take AP classes. We didn't have any students take calculus or physics or some of these advanced courses that can be very difficult to uh, to offer in many of these small rural school districts. So course access gives this great opportunity to meet a really clear need that the state's uh, rural school districts have. Now, if we work our way in a little bit more, um, we're talking about expanding charter schools. Missouri is one of the only states in the nation that geographically limits charter schools. Right now, they're only allowed within the boundaries of the Kansas City, Missouri School District, which isn't even the entire city of Kansas City, and the St. Louis School District. Well, unfortunately, anybody who follows education uh, in the state knows there are many struggling school districts outside of there. Here in Kansas City, the Hickman Mills School District, you know, their performance is statistically indistinguishable from that of the Kansas City, Missouri public schools. In St. Louis, some of the school districts that have lost accreditation: Riverview Gardens, Normandy, and some of the other districts that are around there. You know, students who are residentially zoned to attend those school districts are stuck. They're predominantly in low-income areas, and if families don't have money to move to a better school district, you know, they don't really have any choices. And in many of these districts, to compound the problem, there might, only be, there might be a couple elementary schools, but only one middle school or one high school. And so if students aren't getting their needs met in those schools, again, they're just kind of out of luck. We need to get with the program like every other state that has charter schools and allow them to operate anywhere in the state allow students to enroll across those boundaries so yes you might live in the Normandy School District but if there's a dynamite charter school um, in the Riverview Garden School District you can attend it if you live in the city and there's a great one in the county or here all across the very you know the 14 school districts that we have uh, within the boundaries of the city of Kansas City they're basically these arbitrary lines that have happened for a bunch of crazy historical reasons so allowing students to enroll across those borders could do an incredible amount to increase the educational opportunity that's available in our communities. And now if we look both in our cities, but frankly, just about anywhere in the state, we're talking about education savings accounts. So the three programs we talk about on the K-12 side, course access, expanding charter schools, and now education savings accounts. And what education savings accounts do is almost like a a course access on steroids, charter schools on steroids. And what it does is it takes the funding that would normally go into a child's school and allows them to take it wherever they want. It goes into a flexible youth spending account, like those of you that might be familiar with an HSA. And parents have the opportunity to divide it up between maybe private school tuition or tutoring or special education services, or you want to buy Rosetta Stone to learn a foreign language that might not be offered in your area. And the great thing about ESAs is it is a way to move our education system into the twenty-first century. As more and more educational opportunities are happening outside of the walls of the traditional, you know, red schoolhouse, we want our funding mechanisms, our regulatory mechanisms to evolve with them. So education savings accounts offer this incredible ability for families to customize personalize the education that's right for their child. If Missouri were to pass, we would be, I think, the sixth state in the union to to go after this. And so I think it offers an incredible opportunity for students all across the state, urban, rural, suburban, to really create the education that's best for them. And very briefly, We do talk a little bit about higher education as well. We've been publishing a lot recently about it, really taking a look at how do we improve public higher education in Missouri across three domains, which is affordability, relevance, and rigor. How do we hold the price to attend constant and the price to the state constant, or even maybe try and bend the cost curve down? How do we make sure that the experience that students are having at the higher, uh, in our institutions of public higher education are relevant and are preparing them for success in the real world, not just necessarily in the workforce, but to be informed citizens and good community members? And finally, how do we ensure that the education that they're receiving is rigorous? And frankly, the only way to ensure that they're going to have a rigorous education is to ensure that there is the free exchange of ideas that there's freedom of speech and freedom of expression on campus, that you're not creating quote-unquote safe spaces or trying to, you know, ban speakers that you might disagree with. So affordability, relevance, and rigor are all wrapped up in that. So that's from starting at uh, K-12 and going all the way through higher education.
0: Wow, that's a long list there, Mike. Thank you very much for that. And uh we appreciate that. We may bring you back in depending on the questions we have. Again, if you have a question for Mike about any of these topics you touched on or education in general, again hit star on your phone. We'll be happy to take it. We do have a caller on the line. Wanna try and take him right now. Sam is calling from St. Louis, and Sam, if you're there, please ask your questions.
3: Hey, good to be with you. Thanks for
5: taking my call.
0: I just wanted to uh, get an overview
5: from you guys. What do you expect uh, with the Republican sweep in 2016 as a conservative citizen in St. Louis? What can we expect to see as, a, uh, as some reforms from
3: our state government?
5: All
0: right, Sam, thank you very much for that. Who wants to tackle that? Patrick, you want to have a go with that?
3: I'm happy to tackle that. This is Patrick. Um, I was down at the Capitol uh, earlier this week and so I got to hear a little bit of what uh, a lot of the legislators had planned. And a lot of of what uh, what they told me, a lot of, I think you've heard through the media, right to work is likely going to happen. I think you're going to see a lot of labor reforms, paycheck protection, uh, project labor agreement reforms, uh, prevailing wage as well. Uh, but I think you're also going to see some substantive educational reforms as well. Uh, And and the list that that Mike developed and is is talking about are squarely at center stage right now down at the Capitol building. Uh, Outside of that, I think ethics reform, we saw a bill that uh, passed through the House today dealing with uh, lobbyist gifts. I think that you're going to see more ethics reform. Uh, But I I think you'll also see some tort reform and uh, regulatory reform as well. Hopefully we'll see some tax reform. It's a pretty... pretty, uh, uh, packed uh packed plate so far. Um but it sounds like that that's a possibility as well. So but I, I would say that as far as priorities are concerned, I think labor reform is number one, education is number two. Ethics reform is probably number three, but it's a it's a very strong number three.
1: Can I add Patrick, one thing, Rick? You... This is Brenda. Yeah.
0: Yeah please no, I Brenda. think the
1: challenge for all of us is to continue to keep focused on what free market reforms can do for promoting the growth of this state, and so irrespective of what party label you have, we need to continue to press the fact that if you have competitive markets, if you allow individuals freedom to pursue their their dreams and have the ability to, to be entrepreneurial, that will create the greatest growth for our state. And the exciting thing is I think that people are beginning to get that message and understand the difference these kind of policies can make for a state.
3: And and I would also add
1: that
3: as a a free market think tank, we talk about free markets all the time, but what free markets are are people, and and people empowering solutions are
0: central to what we do, what we work on, and what really motivates us. Okay, thank you both very much. We have uh, answers to our first survey question, and if you recall, that was, which of the following public policy areas would you like to learn more about or have us do more research on? And, Mike McShane, I'm going to come to you because the winner was education. It was health care, taxes, and education. Education was first, taxes second, healthcare care third. And I've got a question for you, Mike McShane, because we had a caller on the line. He has dropped off, but he did leave a question. And this is Ron from Rolla, who wanted to ask Mike McShane, how are ESAs funded? Mike?
4: Yes, thank you so much, and thanks,
0: everybody, for the interest in
4: education. I feel like
0: uh, my work is not in vain, so thank you all for that. you so um, chosen one so, tonight. Go for it.
4: <laughs> thank you. So, Ron, that's an outstanding question uh, because of Missouri's Blaine Amendment. So the state of Missouri has enshrined in its constitution some provisions around how education dollars are allowed to be spent, And um, there's a whole kind of unfortunate history to Blaine amendments, but the the, the lawyers from the Institute for Justice and other kind of um, great free market groups have told us that directly funded private school choice programs. So so an ESA would allow students, if they so chose, to take their money to private schools. Some of those private schools could be religious schools. There are some questions around uh, the Missouri Constitution. Now, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, It would probably have to be litigated, but – to be safe, um, one way to fund education savings accounts program are through tax credits. And what that means is very simple. Uh, if a, a nonprofit organization set up to to administer ESA accounts, and there, there's, you know, in Florida where they have a, an ESA for students with special needs, Step Up for Students, which is a private um, nonprofit organization, runs it individuals and perhaps corporations, depending on you know, uh, how it's eventually set up, can donate to that organization, which then gives the money out, and then get that donation credited against their taxes. So um, if I were to, let's say, have a $1,000 tax liability to Missouri, and I made a $1,000 donation, I would then owe no taxes to Missouri, and that money could be used to go into ESAs for low-income students. Now, luckily, both the United States Supreme Court and state Supreme courts in one of the many of the other states that have Blaine Amendments have found that funding mechanism to be constitutional, and that's how many states in the unions uh, fund private school choice. So it's looking like in the state of Missouri, the, the safest way to do it is to use a tax credit Form. It doesn't run afoul of the Blaine Amendment, and actually, you know, there's lots of evidence that these tax credit programs, tax credit funded scholarships and others, save states money. Um, there's been some great research. Marty Lucan and I um, this summer published a paper where we did, we crunched all the numbers for a hypothetical program here in the state of Missouri. You can check that out on the Show Me Institute's website, and showed under a lot of plausible scenarios that instituting such a plan would actually save states and local districts money. So not only is it kind of constitutionally a good way to do it, um, but there's also lots of other benefits fiscally and otherwise.
0: All right, Mike, thank you very much for that. Uh, appreciate it. We've got another uh, caller on the line. Steve, uh, The county executive, Steve Elman, is on the line. Steve, are you there?
6: Yeah, Rick, can you hear me?
0: I can, please. Thank you for joining us. And uh, how about a question?
6: Well, I have I have several several short questions. Okay, first of all, I, I just like comment.
0: St. I, I, Steve, I should have said St. Charles County Executive. Of course, everybody knows who you are, but please, I wanted to get the title right. So now,
6: That's please. Fine. First of all, just some comments on uh, the reaccreditation or full accreditation now of the uh, St. Louis uh, Public Schools. Uh, a lot has been uh, been said about it. I personally think the uh, Special Administrative Board has done a super job. Somebody needs to ask, though, why when that uh, was authorized in 1998, it took until 2007 for DESE to go ahead and take their accreditation away and actually put the SAB in place. But I think we've seen that uh, they certainly have made progress. A couple other things uh, with regard to testing, the MAP test. Um, you know. <clears throat> In St. Charles County, about 90% of the kids are in school 90% of the time. At, uh, at Normandy, uh, 65% of the kids are in school uh, 90% of the time. Uh, I think it's unfair to the school to hold them responsible for educating kids who aren't there. I think when they report test scores, they should report the scores separately of the kids who actually show up, that are there 90% of the time. If the school is still do uh, those kids are doing poorly, we know the school has failed. if uh, if uh, the kids aren't showing up, I don't uh, I think that's a failure of families and and the community. Uh, same way the AP, there's a lot of emphasis now on AP classes, uh, and I think that's great. but uh, people talk about how many students uh, enroll, and the fact is if you don't get at least a three, Uh, on your test, you're not going to get any credit for it. So I would like to see reporting of how uh, students are actually doing. I would like to see uh, school districts actually go out and find the best AP teachers. And and, uh, uh, so, because it doesn't make any good for a student to sign up for the class if he doesn't uh, make a certain uh, grade. And finally, on STEM, I think uh, obviously we need to emphasize science and technology, math, those types of things. And every time I go to a meeting of uh, superintendents, they they agree. They agree. They, oh, we, we've got to get better at math and science. and But when you ask them, well, then why don't you pay your STEM teachers more than you do your other teachers? Well, they, they don't have an answer for that. And we know one of the reasons is because the unions would have a fit. But um, you know, uh, As long as we pay our physics teacher the same as we do our phys ed teacher, uh, I don't think that sends the right message in terms of what's really important for the future of the state when it comes to education. That's all I have. I'll be interested to hear your uh, comments.
0: All right, Steve. Thank you so much. We do have a bunch of questions, happily, so Mike McShane, do you have something quickly to say to that? We'd like to get to a couple other questions quickly.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Just some quick responses. No, I, I agree with, with with much of what you said. I mean, I think things like MAP tests and others are a pretty blunt instrument that we have to judge the performance of schools. One of the big reasons that I'm a school choice supporter, uh, so I'm a former high school teacher. Um, I come from a whole family of teachers, but I was a teacher myself. And part of one of the things we know in education is that, you know, one school that might be right for one student isn't right for another. And that stuff doesn't necessarily get caught up in test scores. We don't see it. So one of the things we should be really concerned about is fit. How does that student fit in that school? And the same is true with teachers uh, and others. How do they fit within those schools? So what I think when, when I'm thinking about school choice, I'm thinking that allows us to move away somewhat from having to worry about these MAP tests and all of the issues that come with it, allow parents to be that kind of ultimate accountability, allow them to vote with their feet and figure out where the, where the best environment for, for their child is. But no, a lot of those points are well taken, particularly around recruiting STEM teachers and others, and just one last bit, one of the reasons that we're big course access people is that it's incredibly difficult to recruit high quality advanced math and science teachers the, the uh, step and lane pay scales, which you talked about, are exactly part of it. Um, but just in general, I mean, they're, just, they're hard to, to find. So using some kind of program that allows for flexibility, so maybe one district hires a dynamite physics teacher and a lot of the students in the district around them either can get, you know, Skyped into that or whatever, I mean, that's a way to share resources and work together on it, and that course access funding flexibility can facilitate that. All right, Mike,
0: thank you very much. We've got questions lined up, and Jane has been very patiently holding for a long time. Jane from Osage, and I'm told this is Jane Cunningham,
1: right? Yes, it is. At the lake well, Jane, on this winter good night. To talk to you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, I, my question kind of follows up um, with what Michael was talking about with the uh, question from Rala on cost of the ESA. With regard to the reforms on course access and charter expansion and ESAs, do one or all of those together save money for the state of Missouri and districts, or can those uh, bills be structured in a way so that we can prove that they do save money? Because I think that would give us a lot of push to get it through the legislature if we could show that they save money.
5: No, that's an outstanding
4: question, Jane. It's great to hear from you, uh, as always. Um, No, and I think there is, and there's lots of evidence from states around the uh, country that use tax credit programs um, that they do save money. I mean, ultimately, when you think about it – that each student that participate oftentimes people hear the sort of price tag number oh there's a 50 million dollar tax credit or a hundred million dollar tax credit isn't that just putting the budget in the red but what people forget is for each student that chooses to participate in that program that's one fewer student that the state has to pay to educate so with each student that participates in it which is great uh, it's great for the student that number bumps back up, right? So you you start to head into the black. And the same is true actually for local school districts as well. For those students that leave, um the the state money might go with them, but all the local tax revenue that they have still stays in that local community. It doesn't follow the student um to other places. So no, I think that they're absolutely Um, Are ways in which these bills are structured and have been luckily we don't have to we don't have to invent this out of whole cloth We can look to what other states around the country have done And we can look at the results of them and have a really plausible estimate of what we might expect to have happen here in Missouri
0: Mike, thank you so much for that and Jane for the call as well and all the callers who are so interested in education Obviously we could be talking about this all night long I would like to shift gears just briefly here because one of the issues that we spend a lot of time on at the Show Me Institute is corporate welfare in the name of economic development. Tax breaks and subsidies for big companies are a major problem in Missouri, and our Western field manager, Patrick Tuey, has just written a terrific blog post about what that means for our two biggest cities, St. Louis and Kansas City. Patrick, welcome. Join us and fill us in, please.
7: Uh, Sure. Thanks so much. Uh, You know what Missouri is dealing with when it comes to economic development and, and the tax credits that supposedly lead to economic development is not unique to Missouri, it's not unique to our urban areas. Uh, What is happening in cities around the country and has been for decades is that people are opting to move into the suburbs and uh, cities are panicked because developing or delivering services uh, out in the suburbs is much more expensive than it is uh, in a dense urban environment. And so uh, rather than kind of um, deal with the world as it is changing, they are scrambling to try to increase density uh, and to move people downtown. This certainly is true in, in Kansas City. It's true in St. Louis as well. And the way they're choosing to do that is to give uh, incentives, often tax subsidies, to corporations to, to, to build downtown, uh, particularly to build in places where they might not otherwise build. Um, And so you can understand the logic of doing that. They want to increase urban density because then services are more uh, cost-effectively delivered. But the problem is it doesn't work. And and not only does it not work in Kansas City and St. Louis, it doesn't work anywhere in the United States. And so I think just even having that broad view that Missouri cities are not alone and that uh, our solutions uh, have been tried elsewhere and, and haven't worked, and so the way that they uh, offer these incentives take a myriad of different ways. It may be a tax increment financing where the city says we will, um, you know, reduce your taxes or give some of your taxes back to you in order to subsidize it or we will abate property outright and you won't have to pay any taxes on that if you, if you build uh, in an urban area or you build in, in some area. Uh, the problem, of course, is when the city forgoes tax revenue, it has even less money to deliver basic services. and. Again, this is a problem all over the country. Uh, Rick talked about a, a recent blog post. Mark Joffe at the California Policy Center just uh, did a study rating the 116 top uh, cities on their fiscal health. Uh, the, the two worst cities were New York City and Chicago, but Kansas City out of 116 was 101st and St. Louis was 112th. And, and I think uh, what scares a lot of politicians Patrick talked about the free market earlier, and what free market really means is free people acting freely, but that can be scary to a policymaker because you don't control that, and so what policymakers want to do sometimes is second-guess the free market. Uh, They want to goad the free market, kind of steer it one way or the other, Uh, but it doesn't work, and uh, what we need to do in in Missouri is open up, uh, let the people choose, lower taxes for everybody rather than... Tax a few people so that you can subsidize a few others, um, but but there's hesitancy to do that. We have written in our um, Missouri blueprint that we advocate for reducing the corporate income tax and doing that by eliminating corporate tax credits. And, and what we collect in the corporate income tax in Missouri is about the same that we give out in tax subsidies. And so if we just again kind of took our hands off the reins, let the free market work, uh, we'd be able to cut uh, and, and, and not have it cost the state. But again, I think what happens at the city level is that city council members and developers uh, are very eager to, uh, to take tax dollars because it gives them the appearance of control when in fact all they're really doing is, is kind of uh, robbing city services in the long run.
0: Patrick, thank you. You've answered part of this next question, which comes from social media from Michael in Kansas City. and I'm going to bring in Graham Renz, uh, our policy researcher on this, because he has written a lot about this, too. We'll get his thoughts and maybe, maybe go back to Patrick and get a follow-up thought here, too. We're starting to run out a little bit of time here. The question is, how will Missouri, you talked about cities, but what about the state in general? How will Missouri be able to compete with other states that use tax dollars to attract entertainment options if Missouri doesn't use any public dollars themselves? Graham, welcome.
8: Hi there, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Uh, It's a great question. Um, And I think the answer is pretty simple, and I think uh, Patrick just touched on it. Um, Proponents of these incentives, they say, you know, if we lower taxes for the specific developer or the certain group, we'll get... Greater investment, and in the long run, we'll have greater tax revenue. But it seems like uh, we could e- expand that argument to the entire state. And if lowering taxes and tax obligations for certain people will expand, you know, will help the state grow or help this part of the city grow, it'll increase city revenue. The same thing will happen if we do that for everyone in the state. So instead of just picking certain favorite developers or whomever uh, to get tax breaks so that they grow and so that the city uh, or whatever entity gets more tax revenue, what we should focus on is essentially giving everyone an incentive by reducing everybody's tax burden. And that way we get both, we get faster growth, we get more growth, we get probably uh, more tax revenue in the long run, and it's
0: also fair, and we're not distorting the market. Okay, Graham, thank you very much. Well, um, we have a second before we continue this, and I, I do want to kind of continue this because we've got something that, that falls right into this, and I want to talk to your fellow uh, researcher at the Show Me Institute, Michael Highsmith, about that. But first, uh, we have another survey question. And before I give you that, once more, if you'd like to ask a question, you can press star on your phone and join the conversation. The question is, have you ever attended a Show Me Institute event? One, press one for yes, two for no. If you have attended one of our events, please continue to do so. If not, we often have events in many cities around the state. Check out the event schedule on our website, showmeinstitute.org, and please join us. All right, this is something I really wanted to get to, and again, we're running out of time, but speaking of tax subsidies, there's been a lot of talk recently about the proposed soccer stadium in St. Louis, and how much public money should be spent on it. Now, our new governor in Missouri has made a rather strong statement about that, and I'd like Michael Highsmith to tell us if that does indeed, what it seems to indicate is a welcome policy shift may be on the way. Michael, what do you think? Hey, Rick. First off, uh, for anyone
5: who's not aware of the situation, so Governor Greitens came out and he said that he's completely ruled out the idea of state taxes going towards funding a soccer stadium. And we look at this and we can certainly say it's a step towards good policy reform because you you look at the overwhelming amount of research that economists put in towards soccer stadiums, towards MLS stadiums, any kind of sports stadium, the, the financial investments that you put in towards it in the form of public incentives are almost never returned to the public. So it's not a smart investment. And what the main reason behind this is the idea of spending reallocation. So what that means essentially is that if a soccer stadium or a football stadium comes up inside of a city, people who go downtown, they spend their money on game tickets, that's simply their entertainment budget and they're reallocating that away from going out to movies, from going to restaurants, these kind of other places where they'd be spending this money. There's a difference between reallocating economic activity and creating new economic activity. And the overwhelming amount of research shows that these are not creating
0: new economic activity. Okay. Well, that's that. We'll see what happens in the future. That's going to be very, very interesting. Michael, thank you very much for that. I'd like to give you the results of our latest survey question. We're happy to say that on the question, have you ever attended a Show Me Institute event, The vast majority of respondents have said yes, they have. Well, we're happy about that, but there are still some who have not. 76% of those who uh, responded to the survey have come to our events. We're delighted about that, but we want to get 100%, obviously. So as I said before, we have many events around the state throughout the calendar year. Please check our events uh, category on our website, showmeinstitute.org, and you're welcome to attend. We'd love to have you. Okay, we've got one more uh, question I think we can get to here. Keith in Kennett uh, Missouri, has got a question for Patrick Ishmael, I believe. Keith, are you there? Yes, sir. please go ahead uh,
2: the, the The question has been asked, but uh, my point is, Brenda talks about the free market think tank. Mark talks about the free market. Uh, Mr. Patrick said we need to uh, let the free market work in Missouri. Graham says we need to help the state economy. My question is, I have the answer to all of these questions, and no one seems interested. My question is, why does the state why does the federal government allow for so-called mail-order pharmacies to mandate where the insurance people get their prescriptions filled, and so many of them are filled by your large pill pushers who are nothing but a pill retailer. They take all the- So is
0: your your question, what can we do to help lower the cost of prescription drugs? Would that be- No, sir. No, sir,
2: I'll answer that question quickly that well, I'd like to
0: ask a question to Patrick Ishmael if you don't if you don't mind
2: the, the, the question is why can't we have freedom of choice as to where everybody in Missouri gets their prescriptions filled including All right, veterans. Steve, thank you
0: so thank you so much and, and thank you for your patience um, I know you were you were on hold for a while I appreciate that Patrick would you like to comment
3: yeah sure I mean it, it,
0: depending on which insurance program you're in or if you're in
3: Medicare or Medicaid, you know the contracts that are that are arranged between the businesses or the government and the manufacturers themselves control in a lot of cases uh and, and I think if you want to move away from a system that is based off of you know uh, you know uh, uh, bilateral contracts like that and focus more towards uh, being able to actually go out in the marketplace and buy where you want to buy, I think you do have to look at insurance reform more generally. Some of that is going to have to come from the federal government. I mean, it, it, the mandate does not work in terms of actually getting down the cost of, of health care. And the problem that you, you see with health insurance is that it really doesn't operate like insurance. It operates a lot more like a, a a maintenance plan. And until we can actually look at health insurance and say that's insurance, that's a backstop, and you know, for items like annual checkup or for my medication. I'm going to shop for it like I shop for my shoes or my cell phone. Um, Until we see prices for a lot of these items, uh, I think we're going to be beholden to a lot of the contracts that are made between insurers and and the folks uh, that we have to get our our medication from. So that's a, that's a, a broad answer to what is really a series of very specific questions that are dependent on a lot of different business relationships. But the short answer is, yeah, I think you need to have insurance competition. I think you need to have reform in that space and hopefully we'll see it uh, in the next few months.
0: All right, Patrick, thank you very much for that. We have one final survey question for you. Would you participate if the Show Me Institute hosted another telephone town hall? Press one for yes, two for no. Obviously we are biased. We would hope the answer is yes. But again, the survey is, would you participate if the Show Me Institute hosted another telephone town hall? One for yes and two for no. We do have um, one final comment. We're wrapped up on time. We're getting close to the end of our allotted time. Our CEO, Brenda Talent. I wanna bring her in one more time for a final comment. Brenda?
1: I'll probably repeat, Rick, what you're going to, to tell everyone. I want to thank everyone for participating, for your questions, and I would hope that you would consider us as a resource. You know, we're, we're available not just tonight, but every day, so feel free to reach out to the policy analyst directly or to the Show Me Institute generally. We, we are here to help find good policy reforms for the state of Missouri so that we will continue to grow. And... We're, we don't have the, the um, monopoly on good ideas, so if you have some ideas you'd like to share with us, please do so. If you see issues that you think that we ought to be paying attention to, please feel free to give us a call. Thank you, Rick, for allowing me to make those comments.
0: All right, Brenda, thank you very much. Well said. That's going to wrap it up for tonight. Thanks to all of you for joining us. Be sure to go to showmeinstitute.org, Twitter, and Facebook for more information, or to take a look at our 2017 Missouri Blueprint. And for those of you still waiting to ask a question, stay on the line, please. You will be able to leave a voicemail with your question. Thanks again, and to everyone, good night.